Um, so my name is Ben, if you don't know me. I'm the worship director here. Um, so usually I get to say things uh, in melody notes and tones, uh, but once a year I get to preach. Uh, and usually I get uh, all of the really fantastic um, light and uh, fluffy uh, sermons. So last year I preached on Cain and Abel, and this year I'm going to preach on Tamar in Genesis 38. Uh, so let's go ahead, uh, if you've got your Bible apps, I don't have this up on, on the screen, but if you'd love to uh, turn to your Bible apps and go to Genesis 38, we'll read this whole story before we get started. Okay. About that time, Judah separated from his brothers and hooked up with a man in Adullam named Hira. While there, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He married her, they went to bed, she became pregnant and had a son named Ur. She got pregnant again and had a son named Onan. She had still another son and she named this one Shelah. They're living at Kezib when she had him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Judah's firstborn Ur grievously offended God and God took his life. So Judah told Onan, go and sleep with your brother's widow. It's the duty of a brother-in-law to keep your brother's line alive. But Onan knew that the child wouldn't be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's widow, he spilled his semen on the ground so he wouldn't produce a child for his brother. God was much offended by what he did and also took his life. So Judah stepped in and told his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow at home with your father until my son Sheila grows up. He was worried that Sheila would also end up dead, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live with her father. Time passed. Judah's wife, Shua's daughter, died. When the time of mourning was over, Judah, with his friend Hira of Adullam, went to Timnah for the sheep shearing. Tamar was told, your father-in-law has gone to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, put on a veil to disguise herself, and sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. She realized by now that even though Sheila was grown up, she wasn't going to be married to him. Judah saw her and assumed she was a prostitute since she had veiled her face. So he left the road and went over to her. He said, let me sleep with you. He had no idea that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you pay me? I'll send you, he said, a kid goat from the flock. She said, not unless you give me a pledge until you send it. So what would you want in the way of a pledge? She said, your personal seal and cord and the staff you carry. He handed them over to her and slept with her and she got pregnant. She then left and went home. She removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. Judah sent the kid goat by his friend from Adalam to recover the pledge from the woman, but he couldn't find her. He asked the men of that place, where's the prostitute that used to sit by the road here near, near Naam? They said, there's never been a prostitute here. He went back to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. The men there said there has never been a prostitute there. Judah said, let her have it then. If we keep looking, everyone will be poking fun at us. I kept my part of the bargain, I sent the kid goat, but you couldn't find her. Three months or so later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law has been playing the whore, and now she's a pregnant whore. Judah yelled, get her out of here, burn her up. But as they brought her out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. Identify them, please. Who's the owner of the the seal and cord and the staff? Judah saw that they were his. He said, she's in the right, I'm in the wrong. I wouldn't let her marry her son, Sheila, and he never slept with her again. The Word of God. 
So I don't know about you, as you're reading through this, this, this story, like there's just so many questions. I have a million questions. And, and most of those questions really bother me. Most of those questions aren't like, you know, like silly little details. Most of those questions are like, really? Why? Like that? That's awful. See, I grew up in a home uh, where it was, it was a very conservative Christian home, and we did daily Bible readings. And there was usually three every day, so two Old Testament and one New Testament. And you would do that, and you would go on to the next. Anyone else do that as a practice growing up? A couple of people. And so uh, one of the things that would happen after that, once we'd kind of finish you know, doing the reading, was that one of the male heads of the household, so my father or maybe a visiting male or my grandfather if he was around, uh, would then offer words of wisdom or a mini-sermon and explain the passage and often fall into a bit of a moral of the story for us from this text. Uh, when uh, Sarah and I got married, uh, her home was quite different, and they hadn't kind of grown up with this, this rhythm of daily readings. Um, and at some point, when we kind of were talking about, um, I think, one of the topics we'd chosen for the youth group, Sarah was like, I don't know if I've heard this story. And she had this hunch that maybe she hadn't had read the whole Bible. I, however, was a very cocky conservative thing, like, I've read it all. I know it all. Um, so one of the things we did was buy a brand new version of the Bible and Sarah started reading the Bible. She started reading from the very start, which, by the way, is not a good idea. So if you're, if you're a new Christian or you're finding your way through faith, I don't know what if I would recommend. I know that Sarah would definitely not recommend starting with Genesis. It's kind of a brutal story because this is Genesis 38. So we're only 38 chapters in and let's catch up on what God's already done so far in Genesis. He's already wiped out everyone on earth in a flood. He's already asked a father to kill his son. He's already wiped out a whole village and turned it into salt, causing, one of the, causing the father who lost his wife to get really drunk and sleep with his daughters. Now that's, that's just the first few chapters. So Genesis is probably not the most amazing place to start if you're trying to figure out who God is. So we're in this root series right now where we're tracing the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1, which I'll probably recommend to you more starting with the Gospels in the New Testament, starting there. But we're in Matthew chapter 1, and we're trying to ask ourselves the question, what, uh, what does this mean? What is this genealogy of Jesus? All these people that are listed, is there deeper meaning here? Why are these people listed? What do these names mean? What do these stories represent? And I think the assumption uh, that we come, we come at with our Western Christian mindset uh, into the story of Tamar was that there must be something redemptive in this story. There must be something good and beautiful. We just read the story, right? So, like, let me ask you a question. And, and first service was very, very shy. So don't be shy. It's just me. You, you know, I'm not going to condemn you anything. And God is also not going to strike you down if you get the answer wrong. How many times is God mentioned in this story, Genesis 38? Twice. Yes, that's right. And, and they were both when he killed uh, these sons. Uh, so, yes, brownie points for, for the right answers. Uh, so maybe a few of you are new here to Forefront and you haven't kind of sleep, gone through this last two years where we've been talking about this Old Testament God and what we really do believe with this. But suffice to say, our summary of this is that we don't really believe that God reaches down from heaven and kills people. Uh, we really, probably more so, kind of sitting in this idea that the authors in their place and time, in their context, thought that God was a God who punished evil deeds. And so their interpretation of a husband falling sick with an illness and dying was the fact that that husband actually, you know, sinned. That was their interpretation. We don't necessarily believe that. But it's interesting that God is, the only time that God is in this story is those two parts, and after he, the death of these two sons, God is silent throughout this story. Just not, not a player at all. 
And so that was one of my questions as I was thinking about that this week. Like, if this is in the Bible and Tamar is listed in the genealogy of Jesus, then where is God in this story? But as I reflected more and more on that question, I always realized this was a story I was, this is a question I was trained to ask by this one chapter at a time reading of the text and the assumption that every story had a neatly wrapped up moral for us. A very easily explained Pollyanna-like, all things work together for good mentality. And I think often we probably skip around this chapter rather than actually even delving into it because it's very uncomfortable and contains a lot of things that are taboo in church like non-consensual sex, prostitution, and certainly a lot of lies and deception. It doesn't play well at a Sunday school lesson and it doesn't have a clear moral for us at the end. So the question is, why is it here? Why is Genesis 38 in the text? Uh, And I think to do that we need to understand uh, how the Bible kind of works. Um, so, like in every single book, if you pick up a book and start at the beginning, who's read Princess Bride, by the way? Anyone read that book? All right. So, you understand the Princess Bride flip flops back and forwards between the narrative and then the history and sort of interrupts those things. This story is an interruption. So, Genesis 37 and Genesis 39 are about Joseph. You know, Joseph from Technicolor Dreamcoat, that dude. Uh, so, let's, let's see the, um, the genealogy up there, Jim, if you've got that up there. This story is very much embedded in the origins of the Jewish faith. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you've probably heard those kind of names. This is the patriarchy of the Jewish faith. These guys are the, the granddaddies, the fathers of, of the Jewish people. Um, and so when we get down to Jacob, you see there that Jacob has ten sons by one woman called Leah, who he didn't like and the Bible calls bad-looking. And then two sons by uh, Rachel, he was in love with, and he worked seven years to get Leah. His father-in-law deceived him, and then he worked another seven years to get Rachel. And out of these two uh, women, so we get Judah on the one hand, on the left-hand side, who comes out of Leah, who this Judah is named in this story. Judah is the, is the one of the main characters. And then we get Joseph. So to back up into Genesis 37, Joseph uh, is one of the only characters, I think, in the Bible who ever... Uh, there was never a bad word said about Joseph. So King David and a lot of the other heroes of faith, there's usually some sort of fatal flaw. Like King David liked women. That was one of his, you know, one of his issues. He had a thousand wives or something stupid. Oh, it was Solomon. Sorry. Uh, like father, like son. So, so often there are fatal flaws, but Joseph is one of the only characters in the text that I know of that literally there's never really a bad word spoken about him. Although he is kind of a bit of a cocky kind of young guy, he gets visions from God about his, his brothers bowing down to him, and then he actually has the, the no sense to actually tell his brothers this story. Like, by the way, you're going to bow down to me one day. Yeah, thanks, Joseph. So everywhere he goes, uh, even though he's very successful, he causes envy in people around him. He's loved by his father, and he lavishes on him that the, uh, the coat of many colors, which uh, is usually reserved for the um, firstborn or reserved for the, the favorite of the family, the one who's passing on the line. Uh, later in, in Joseph's life, when he's uh, taken off to Egypt, he refuses to be unfaithful and sleep with his boss's wife, who comes after him very aggressively sexually. Um, he rises to the highest ranks. He becomes the second in command in the Egyptian court, which is the power of the day, uh, all because of his character. So I think uh, when we're looking at this text, the author is playing with us a little bit. We have on one hand Joseph, who's the goody two-shoes, and Joseph, who there's nothing kind of bad said about him. Then we get his brother Judah, who is half-brother Judah from another mother. So Judah resents Joseph because he's one of the elder brothers. Uh, when his father shows him favoritism, uh, Judah is grumbling behind his back to the other brothers about this guy, saying, who does he think he is? Then he actually plots with his brothers to turn against him 
they throw him into a pit for a couple of days and then eventually decide to sell him to some slave traders who send him off to Egypt. And as if that's not bad enough, he then takes the coat, uh, cuts it up, puts blood on it, and then tells his father that his, his son is dead and breaks his father's heart. So that's, in th- that's Genesis 37. Then we get to Genesis 38 and you find out you know, he sleeps with a prostitute after his, his wife dies uh, and he's constantly like playing dice with his uh, daughter-in-law's sex life. So I think in the binary we have like the good and the bad. We have Joseph on one hand who looks like the good guy and on the, on the binary we have bad on the other side. What's interesting is in both of these stories, both Judah and Joseph both have twins um, at the end of the story, which is a sign of kind of blessing. Both of them get blessed in some kind of way. Uh, but I think this brings us down to why is Tamar in the story and why is she in the genealogy? I think personally that we, you know, here at Forefront, we think God is with everybody in, in regardless of where they're at. So we believe that God is with Joseph in his exile to Egypt and in, in, with him with his climb to the top of the claim, he t- tied his climb to the top of the chain. God is with him in his success. God is with him in the goodness of his life. God is with him uh, in his, his, his character. But we also believe that God is with Judah in the betrayal of his brother and in the time of his grief over his wife's death. And I think the difference is the story of God as it's kind of marched out through the genealogy of Jesus and the story of the ultimate redemption marches on through the voice of Tamar, the voice of a Canaanite woman taken by marriage, used, spurned, forgotten about, but he uses her wits and her wiles to stand up to oppression and patriarchy. Which brings me to, like, why would we actually, like, still tell this story today? Like, aren't we, aren't we better than this? Have we kind of evolved? Have we kind of grown? Um, and as I was thinking about uh, the events yesterday of Charlottesville and thinking about uh, what to, to, how to reflect on that this morning, I came upon the kind of thought of uh, that ultimately what Tamar does is civil disobedience. Ultimately what Tamar does is stands up to the patriarchy, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and to the people in power, and speaks truth to that power, and uses her own strength and her own sexuality and her own person um, to speak to the truth to that power. So I thought uh, no better person really to kind of model that than Rosa Parks. Uh, and I thought we'll do a bit of a lesson because I get to talk on these things and I get to ask you guys questions. Uh, what do you know about Rosa Parks? What were you taught about in school? No wrong answers, just shout them out. Say again. The front of us, yes. What else? She says you were just tired. Yep. Yep. Face with movement. Yep. What do we know about Rosa Parks before the bus? Anyone know the story, the history? That's right. Long, so she was a long-time secretary of the NAACP. So she'd been involved with this work for quite some time. Her and her husband, when they met, uh, her husband was involved with that. 
and she, it was that's absolutely correct that she had a whole lot of history and it was quite chosen or was anointed kind of for this kind of role although I think the timing of it was was very much like that was a moment that she kind of took it wasn't kind of a planned necessarily time but yes very much she kind of knew what they were doing and they were already working in a bunch of cases like this that were in existence um, uh, do, does anyone recall actually how this kind of went down? You know, in terms of the, the bus rules, to kind of know what was behind that and kind of what the what the bus rules were. No, no one. All right. So uh, at that point in time, the buses were segregated. So there was a, a coloured section in the back where this was the only place where black people were actually allowed to sit. But for, uh, even more than that. Uh, even though there was a designated area, and even though 75% of the, the buses were actually, 75% uh, of the riders on the buses were black folks, that any time that there became too many white people on the bus, the black people would actually ha then have to get moved to the back of the bus. So I think what's interesting to me about how we look at this story, this Tamar story, is that what we always see is that people in power and privilege move the sign for the marginalized and the oppressed. Much of the way we see uh, Tamar, you know, the, the father comes to her and says, well, first of all, you're going to marry this boy. Well, that boy dies. And then, then he's like, well, this boy's going to come and, and try and inseminate you. And he doesn't do his job. And then he also then says, well, now you have to wait uh, for my younger son. And so he's constantly moving the line, moving the sign. And I think this is very similar to what happened here on the buses, that every single time that sign got moved, kind of that, that legislating how and people can use their bodies. And maybe you don't recall, but Rosa Parks was actually sitting in the designated section. She was sitting in the section that was designated to her when it actually happened that a bunch of white people got onto the bus and the bus driver was actually asked her to move. And she did accommodate. She moved to the window, but she, she, didn't, she refused to stand and refused to get out of the section that was designated for her. What's even more interesting is Rosa had already had a run-in with this driver before. The driver's name was James Blake. And he had once demanded, that even though she'd got on and paid uh, her way onto the bus, that he demanded that she get off the bus and re-enter by the rear door, which actually was kind of the, the rules at the time. So this, I think, was a, a, previous, a previous moment where she kind of had, had been kind of testing out uh, what these kind of rules would actually mean. But once she actually got off the bus that day and it was raining, he drove off and left her there. So I think she actually recognized uh, James Blake on that day. I don't think it was... It was just entirely fate. She knew uh, someone who had stood up to her in a way that was demeaning and marginalizing. Um, what do we know about Rosa Parks after this incident? Anyone know what happened in her life? By the way, Wikipedia. It's your friend. I know I preached last, last year on, uh, on slavery and, and talked in Wikipedia. It's, you know, get educated. It's right there on your phone. It's amazing. So Rosa Parks uh, and her husband both had a lot of trouble. They got fired after, after these incidents. They moved multiple times. Um, she received death threats for the rest of her life, and she lived uh, into her 90s. Uh, the, she actually moved at some point moved to Detroit, and in her 80s was assaulted in her own home uh, by an assailant and kind of went through that trauma. And eventually, uh, in her last few years of her life, um, he, she actually was almost evicted from her apartment because, uh, because she couldn't pay rent because she was destitute. Um, and thankfully it came to the attention of some folks and some people actually kind of stepped up and paid the rent for the rest of her life. What I think is really interesting to me is right on the very end of this Wikipedia page, 
it says this, that um, upon her death in 2005, she was the first woman and the third non-US government official to lie in honor at the Capitol Rotunda. 2005, like, I, I feel like, you know, we look at these stories about like, stuff in the Bible and we think, well, we've moved on, right? It's the 21st century. Like, things are better now. Like, so things have definitely improved. Like, you know, we don't have as much, you know, women have more rights and, 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 and all folks of colors and ethnicities and sexual orientation do have more rights than ever. But in 2005, the first woman was, was buried in a place of power and privilege. Like, we're not over this stuff yet. Like, it's not... It's not that far away that, that women and, and people of color and LGBTQ people are pushed to the back of the line all of the time. And their bodies and how and when they can do what they can do are legislated uh, by people in power and privilege. So, what else can, can we kind of learn out of this story today? I mean, there's obviously this big social lesson with what's going on right now in Charlottesville. I think this, this church personally stands with... Uh, the victims of, you know, and, and the mourns with, with the people who have died over this incredible violence and condemns the fact that we really do believe that, you know, uh, people with white supremacy uh, is not welcome in this place. It's just not welcome. It's not, it's not the time. It's not the place for it. So aside from our social and political climate, uh, what else can we kind of learn? Because I think that there should always be multiple levels and multiple uh, readings of a text. Uh, one of the things I found out a few weeks ago, I knew this, but I, for some reason it kind of it, it struck me differently, is that 50 of the psalms, that's about a third of the psalms, are classified as laments or psalms of disorientation, as expressing or voicing hurt or complaint. So about a third of them. And an author, uh, Logan Jones, writes this. He says, By praying the laments, Israel had a way of directly facing the hurtful dimensions of human life. Israel did not try to explain them away, deny them, or avoid them. Instead, Israel held to the premise that all of life, even the hurtful dimensions, was embraced by God. And what does this have with Genesis 38? I think often in our own stories and in the life of people of faith and in churches, we want to skip by the uncomfortable things. We want to skip by the things that hurt us. We want to skip by the pain of other people to get to the, yay, Jesus rose and died again. We're all good. But I don't think we can always do that. I think today is not one of those days where we can just blithely walk on by and pretend nothing's happening in the world. Today is the day where we lament and we moan and we say that the, the distasteful and the hurtful things are what they are. We name them, we don't deny them, we don't avoid them, we don't try to explain them away. And I think in the, in the Tamar story we can't do that either. So where's God in this, in this story? I don't know. I have no idea where God is in the Tamar story. But what I do know is that uh, God didn't use the good guy or the bad guy. God used the poor marginalized woman to speak truth to power and that woman is listed in Jesus' genealogy in the vast array of, of God's justice, in the, in the long arc of justice. Uh, that woman's voice gets heard and that woman's voice uh, speaks to us today. So maybe you feel tired of the news. Maybe you feel tired from the way the world and tired from all the chatter on Facebook. But I don't think we cannot feel as tired as Tamar or Rahab or Ruth or Rosa Parks. So I think in this time this morning, it's time to learn our own dark stories, to look into them, to not avoid them, to not explain them away or deny them, but to learn our own dark stories. And then also open out our ears to other people around us, to other people who've lived with oppression more than, more than perhaps we have. 
learn these stories, and then be renewed again by the feast which we will share as we do every Sunday. And may we remember that God never tires of our cries and never tires of those of the oppressed. So let us run and not be weary.